lot of people here. They did a Groupon, I think, for this year, the first time. Yeah. And uh, yesterday morning, a, a woman piled wearily by my table with all her kids and said, you know, that they were all sold out weeks ago. So, uh, oh, wow. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I hope it works. You know? it, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I most of the shows I tend to go to are sort of, you know, like the SPXs, the sure. Mochas, the smaller ones. And mm-hmm. um, when I do go to a big show, when I can get work to send me, it's usually san diego and this is this is interesting because it's kind of um you know it's it, it, it feels, san diego 20 years ago yeah exactly <laughs> in some way it, it feels like not quite the scale but it's certainly like a big show but it oh, doesn't yeah. have the um that kind of tether that san diego has in terms of you know these big like the pomp and circumstances of the big announcements it's a very healthy show it's been yeah. growing every year but not in an uncontrolled way so it hasn't gotten cumbersome and it still runs very smoothly you know god bless the ones who the people who run the really huge shows and make yeah. them you know go as smoothly as they do i don't know how they do it honestly i i guess what the dif- i guess what the difference is you know and it, it's almost silly to say but you you come to a show like this and it kind of feels like it's about comics mm-hmm. you know san diego is kind of has sort of gotten to the point where it's it's about everything but comics well, the comics are still there. They're still yeah. an integral part of it, you know. It's uh, it's just that it's a flash city, yeah. and uh, you cannot see all of a flash city. You cannot help but be swept along by the undercurrents of a, a flash city because that's what it is, you know. It's it's uh, it's less of a con and more of a town, and uh, you know we go to cons with the expectation that we're going to see and do you know everything sure. or as much of everything as we can and you know that's like walking you know that's like getting off the uh, the train at Penn Station yeah. and saying I'm gonna see all New York no no you're not or, or I'm going on every ride in Disneyland I'm today everyone yeah. uh, today yeah no not gonna happen you just have to kind of go with it you know um, treat it like Mardi Gras and just uh, you know don't 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 fight it just kind of go along with it do you find do you find that the interactions of a show like this, with a show that is purely comics based, are different than than something like San Diego? The people who come up, um, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, um, Baltimore tends to be a, a little bit quieter of a show yeah. for me than uh, than say SPX. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Baltimore, I get a chance to go out and find people. I get a chance to connect with, uh, with, with writers to see what kind of projects they might have a few years down the road. Um, there are people who come to this one that don't come to, uh, to, to SPX. So it's a very different show. I mean, this one's a more of a, a media con from my customer's point of view than it is uh, than, than SPX is. You know, SPX people are coming for comics because that's what's there yeah um but at the same time you know there are a lot of great creators that are only here and uh and 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 aren't going to be coming to spx so yes it's different um but uh but but they all have their points and uh and here you know i mean the my current big project no mercy was born at baltimore Hmm. um because i'd worked with alex decampi uh, on a previous project, but we hadn't actually met. Yeah. We uh, we made a, an appointment to you know to run on, accidentally on purpose run into each other at Baltimore, and she got a look at my other work and said, "Hey, you do good teenagers. You want to do something?" I said, "Yeah, sure," and it just kind of went rolling from there. And other projects have have happened like that at at, at shows like that. So, you know, just the, the the fact that it's a different crowd naturally gives you new interactions. It, it is, it's interesting that, that so much of this still kind of happens in person, you know. I mean, all, oh, yeah. all of your stuff is, is, is out there. You've got a lot of stuff online. But the fact that you need to actually meet somebody and interact with them to decide if you're, if you're going to work with them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that happens a lot. But uh, I think that's like the difference between, uh, you know, uh, bricks and mortar shopping and online yeah. shopping. There are some things that you can, if you know exactly what you want, that you can buy online without any trouble. But other things, you know, you just have to touch and pick up and heft. And, uh, and uh, talking to, you know, talking yeah. to people is still where a lot of the, uh, the big connections come from. You feel like you've got to really kind of like somebody and get along with them in order to really collaborate in a meaningful way? I'm sorry. What? Uh, that you know, they, that you have to sort of meet somebody and 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 have that connection before you can really 
collaborate with them closely? It depends. It, uh, you know, I mean, I've worked with writers who are really, really, really hands off. Like, yeah. you know, uh, once you get the script, they're moving on to the next thing. And uh, what happens from there is really kind of up to you. Uh, and I've had a great time with that process, too. Uh, what I'm doing right now is very interactive. It's very like a jazz band hmm. where, you know, the writer gives you a script and, I mean, I sit down, I do my, my rough pencils and I always include my rough lettering balloons on them for yeah. composition, for placement. And because I know I'm not going to be lettering the thing, I can either put what's supposed to be in the balloons or I can just come up with whatever. You know, I can, I can riff on the dialogue. Hmm. And uh, sometimes that ends up in the book. Not often, but sometimes. Um, and uh, because I know that, that Alex will take uh, my suggestions as just that, suggestions. Yeah. And, um, you know, it'll either turn up in the book or it won't. And no big deal to me. It's 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 sort of it's similar to what you know a lot of um, comedy has has turned into uh, a lot of comedy films have turned into it's all this sort of improvisation for the sake that maybe you know you'll you'll create something out of the process of creating. Oh sure, that, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no Mercy is a perfect example. I mean, all three of us working on that book, uh, Alex, me, and Jen, the colorist, uh, we're all writers, and so we all have you know, varying levels of input as to, uh, to, to to what happens with it. You know, Alex is the originator. She knows where she wants it to go. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, we all have our process of feedback. Is and it's really fun doing it that way. But I've worked with, uh, you know, a lot of writers who don't do it that way and still had a perfectly yeah. good good time doing it. Is is writing always part of the drawing process for you? Like for when, me, yeah. yeah. It, when you're definitely. working on your own stuff, you're kind of writing it as you as you go along, in a sense. Well, uh, I know a lot of writers don't use outlines and prefer not to because it make it, it kind of kills it for them. For me, I absolutely have to have an outline. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it's just one in the back of my head, or sometimes it's one I've got written down so that I can remember the complicated bits. But uh, but I don't usually sit down and write the whole thing yeah. in one go, beginning to end. Um, I've got a it's kind of like, you know, having a map to where you want to go, sure. you know. You're going from New York to San Francisco. Yeah. Well, which way are you going to go? What cities do you want to hit on the way? You know, the cities are what I put on my outline. You know, I got to get from here to here, and then I'm going to detour to here, and then back. And the things that happen while I'm in those cities, I think I know what I'm going for, but when I get to write that section, yeah. you know, I'm writing the Chicago section, uh, you know, it will be what I had in my head, but there's still room for me to change things around. Does it, do you ever find that it detours in such like a meaningful way that you know maybe you end up in Chicago instead of San Francisco before it's over? Sometimes you do do that. That's how something a big radical change hasn't happened to me in an outline in a while, but lots of little ones. You know, yeah. the, you go the northerly route or the southerly route. What little towns do you hit in between the big cities? That happens a lot. And you know the little city experience, the little town experiences can change the whole journey. Yeah. So there is a lot of that, but I generally have a pretty good idea what what cities I want to hit. Did Did you? At what point was it clear that Finder was going to be just this giant kind of lifelong epic for you? From the beginning, really? because frankly, I didn't know how to do small stories at yeah. the time. You know, I I had a a mass of stuff that I wanted to establish and an awful lot of characters and I quite frankly didn't know what I was doing. Hmm. So I, instead of trying to do some massive, you know, world bending story, I said, okay, I'm going to set things up and then see what stories emerge. I see. So it was much more wandering and less planned back then and I've learned a lot about plotting since then. And uh, a plot backbone, you know, gives you, gives you your directions. So you were populating the land, you were kind of seeding it, you were, you were creating characters and connections, mm -hmm. but there wasn't... Well, there were stories, but they were personal stories, yeah. you know? A personal story only affects a few people. Sure. I haven't done anything earth-shaking that affects everybody or, you know, a whole mass of people yet. Um, working towards that. It, it, epic from the standpoint that you knew that you were going to be working on it for a long time, but not necessarily that you knew what the overall arc of the story was oh, going to be. Oh, most definitely, yeah. yeah. You didn't, didn't didn't quite see the see the ending? Oh, no, no. Uh, I'm not sure I do now. I think this is a thing that I could come back to over and over again, whether I, you know, took a detour yeah. and did any number of things. But 
for the time being, Finder is, is thumping along in a, a way that I'm really enjoying doing. And I tried to make sure it had a high enough uh, you know, ceiling that I could do any kind of story I wanted to. So I think I've managed to do that so far, but that's not to say that I'll never back off from it and yeah. uh, go in a different direction. What, what, what do you mean by ceiling? What I mean is that um, for me, of course, this is partly a product of when I got into it. Back yeah. in the 90s, the internet wasn't what it is today. And um, to keep track of somebody working in the small press, it was really helpful if they had their own book that they you know, just yeah. maintain their little newsletter stuff in. Sure. And um, I tried doing a little detour story called Mystery Date. Uh, and I started over, you know, with a new title and an issue one and everything. And I did a mat a, all of two issues of that, and sales plummeted yeah. because no, nope, everybody was looking for Finder. Two issues of this side story, which mm -hmm. was set in the same world, was coming out of the same bi-monthly schedule, but it had a different name. So a lot of my readers just yeah. dropped off the cliff, you know. And then I had. You expect an indie book to disappear. They do all the time. Yeah. And so the fact that I hadn't disappeared, I just came. I was just doing something with a different name, taught me a rather harsh lesson. So I said, okay, all right. What I need to do is just do keep everything under the the main title finder and subtitle every major yeah. story that I want to tell, and just keep everything under the same banner so that people can find me. This is not such a big deal now yeah. because you can just have a website and you know have all your news and what I'm up to and all that stuff. Do your social media stuff and people can people can find you and keep track of yeah. you if they're looking. So it's a very different thing. But um, yeah, I just built a world that I thought was big enough to encompass any kind of story that I might like to tell. Of course, it isn't big enough to tell everything that I would want to do you know I mean I can't do a historical set in this world I can't do you know a uh, I mean I, you, you can in a sense you know this it is your world to do with as as you please but. right but I'd have to redefine a lot of things about yeah. it to do certain things and uh, and you know and that may be a thing to do you know but I think I've set it up so that it's a big enough place that I could you know say move to a different part of it sure. where the rules are different and uh, you know, do entirely different stories there. But you know, I mean, I can do a love story. I can do a detective story. I can do a horrible, horrible, horrible police procedural. <laughs> I can do you know, I can do horror. I can do whatever within this milieu and uh, and and be reasonably successful in, in mounting it. So. And you and, and you you know you you come from the sort of a science fiction background as well, sure. and it's really, you know, people are very insistent that once you put the rules in place ah. that you keep to them to some degree. But just the same, you know, um, there are rules that get broken. There are yeah. rules that were misunderstood to begin with. I mean, even in life, you know, we think we know how a thing works and then sure. some new discovery is made and turns it all upside down. That kind of radical change, uh, you know, is, is natural too, you know, or just a shift in the way people look at things. Uh, so eras of history can pass in a comic book too and uh, that is a that is a thing I've always liked about um, post post-apocalyptic fiction where you know some horrible thing happened 200 years ago and everybody put everything back together all backwards and sideways but there's been enough time passed that yeah. quote that's the way it's always been yeah and people don't think about what happened in their great-grandparents time you know it's interesting but not really relevant to the way you live now so, you know, there's always that kind of thing, sure. too. And that is really kind of what I had had in mind when I created the, the world that Finder is set in. You know, everything's upside down and backwards, but people are just used to it being this way now. And, and you know, by, by calling it post-apocalypse, you're, um, you're setting up that there was something pre-apocalypse, that there is some kind of potential history there oh, sure, that you could sure. delve into. I mean, into. apocalypses happen all the time. Sure. But, but, you know, that implies that there was something before that, you know, that maybe there's something to explore there Almost as well. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, when, when, when you, you talk about the banner, it's, you're, almost, you're almost talking about kind of branding from a standpoint. And, and, I, you know, and, you, and when you started, you know, it's, 
when we're looking at kind of the independent comics world, we're looking at, you know, um, love, like Love and Rockets. Mm -hmm. oh, we're yeah. looking at, um, I mean, Love and Rockets, it's really the perfect example of a book where there's this brand, but they've kind of, they've given themselves, they've opened themselves up for the possibility to kind of like do anything, oh, yeah. anything yeah. within that. I mean, most recently, Jaime has gone back to his superhero characters, and he's yeah. obviously having a ball with them. And he effectively reinvented uh, Maggie for a short time. You know, I don't know whether he means to that to be a, just an ongoing thing for him. Uh, I think his premise is that, you know, all women have superpowers yeah. from birth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, only some of them sort of uh, come into their abilities later in life. Most of them lose them. What were the... What were the books that you were looking at uh, for inspiration when you started in terms of like... Oh, Love what, and Rockets, definitely. Yeah, that, uh, that made you realize that you could actually, you know, do that. Well, Cerebus, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I owe a great debt to uh, to, to, to Dave Sim. Yeah. Um, not only for the fact that he was, at the time, doing little editorials at the inside of his book, just saying, you know, look, just go to the store and get this and try this and, uh, you know, and just do it and don't spend all your time trying to figure out how you're going to market it mm. when you don't even have the thing to yeah. market yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, you're right. And I went to the art store and I bought a bunch of stuff and most of the stuff that I bought that, you know, that a lot of pros used, I hated, mm. but that was okay. I was started and I could figure out the things that I liked to work with over time, which I did. Um, but he's just such an amazing storyteller. Nobody can match his, the expressiveness of his lettering. Yeah. And uh, you know the the amount of information he can express with it, um, but you know definitely him, definitely uh, um, definitely Love and Rockets, um, definitely the horrors. I didn't grow up on su the superheroes. I read the mm. the old horrors. Yeah, EC um, and definitely yeah. Uh, definitely Alan Moore, definitely Neil Gaiman. Yeah, um, these were. But you know one of the interesting things that happens when I was a kid. Uh, well, not a kid. I was a teenager. And I was trying to decide whether or not I, I really wanted to do this for a living because I'd always kind of had it in my mind to do. I went to a, I went to a convention and um, there was one of those dealers tables that was just piled high with these great big slippery piles of, of original artwork. Yeah. And sitting on the top of two piles right next to each other was a Dan DiCarlo Archie page and a Steve Rude Nexus page. Uh, love Nexus. And um, the Nexus page was so perfect, it looked like it had hatched out of a head, uh -huh. an egg and had never been touched by human hands. Yeah. And, uh, and the Archie page was just covered with, uh, with white gouache and, yeah. and pencil marks and coffee mug rings yeah. and everything. And uh, I was just like, wow, you know how perfect and elegant and pristine that was going to look yeah. when it was, you know, yeah. finally got through the press. And, you know... And I, I glared at the I glared at the Nexus page, and I found a tiny spot of white gouache next to some gorgeous girl's eye. Yeah. And I was like, okay, it's all right. Everybody can make a mistake and fix it. Yeah. If these two people whose work I love so much can fix stuff, I can too. That was a big thing for yeah. me, just to see that you know my heroes made mistakes and fixed it, and that's what you do. You know, an opera singer never a, a trained singer will still hit a wrong note, but they know how to fix it so quickly that most people won't notice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's what you do. You make a mistake and you fix it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's really one of the most prohibitive part of the, parts of the creative process is, is this idea that if I'm going to put something out into the world that it needs to be perfect immediately. Mm -hmm. But perfect only exists in the mind of the viewer. Yeah. You know, uh, you the creator, it's never going to be perfect. Never, ever, never, ever, never. That's just, you know, that's just something you have to get used to. There is a neat interaction between what's in your head and what ends up on the page that a lot of people spend a lot of time complaining about. But honestly, if you get into it, it's kind of fun because things will happen that you didn't intend and sometimes they're better. Working online potentially affords you the opportunity to sort of experiment, to, to you know, to put stuff out there when it doesn't feel like it has to be maybe quite as perfect as if you're going to go through the process of creating a book. Well, I don't know that doing it online necessarily makes that much difference. Mm. I mean, I assume by online you mean doing it as a webcomic? Yeah. Well, um, I, did, uh, I, I did post uh, a number of stories to my website, uh, you know, standard webcomic process, three pages a week uh, for, for a long time. Um, and I did have a, a story kind of crash and burn, just 
reach a point where hmm. there were you know either too many moving parts or too many missing pieces and uh, I, I backed off from it for a long time felt kind of bad about leaving it hanging there unfinished but it just I could not see it narrowing to a point and making an end and uh, sometimes that's okay because you can just kind of you know instead of giving a book an ending you just can just go done next yeah. next book but um, but honestly backing off from it and uh, redoing it from the beginning is what I'm actually doing now mm. and uh, I'm really happy with it the way it is now I think that everybody's going to get a much better book out of the process but at the same time I it, it's not a thing that's going to stop me from working online and putting it out where people can see it is not going to stop me from going back and you know doing a hatchet job on it later you know I think that people kind of like that you know seeing seeing the process happen is fun kind of like how excited I got over seeing those two pieces of artwork at the at a convention um, one of the big things that a lot of pros do when we get together at shows is talk process everybody's got a different way of going about yeah. doing essentially the same things um, and uh, getting to see earlier iterations of a book makes people a it makes it look more possible so other people can get into it and uh, B, you know, it's just always kind of cool to see the, the scenes that hit the cutting room floor mm -hmm. and the, the different direction taken. Sure. The director's uh, cut. The director's cut, yeah, yeah. and uh, all of that stuff. I mean, director's cut implies that there will be a version, sure. that the version that's official is not the, the yeah. best version, but that isn't, necessarily, that isn't necessarily true of what I'm talking about. Um, that seeing the different angles that a story could have taken can a good bit of the time tell you, yeah, that, that, that wouldn't have been as good as what ended up there. Uh, like that uh, Pixar movie, Inside Out. Yeah. Um, the main character, although she's arguably an antagonist, maybe not a villain, but an antagonist, is, is Joy. And uh, they originally wanted to pair her up not with sadness, but with fear. Hmm. That, you know, fear was the thing that was keeping... You know, the little girl who's the nominal, uh, you know, yeah. there are her emotions, yeah. was keeping her from, you know, enjoying her life, doing things that she would have gotten into doing. But as they went along, they, they decided that that was really too simple, that it's too easy. Everybody knows that you've got to go for the things that you want and not try not to be afraid or just kind of go with the fear. And uh, that, the story, that the, the story really was improved by swapping out sadness for fear. Yeah. Because the interaction between joy and sadness is not a thing that, you know, a lot of people think about very much. And it made a better story for a kid's film. Um, you know, we well, as parents, nobody wants to see your kids sad. But at the same time, repressing sadness is yeah. not, not good, not good for them. You know, some things just are sad and that needs to be experienced and not denied. So that made a more profound statement than just go for the things you want, don't be afraid. It, it, it's got to be a little kind of heartbreaking, though, to sort of get to that point to have worked on something for a while and realize that it's all wrong and then you have to completely back it up. Oh, it's a bit of a wrench, but honestly, that's why I uh, was putting things up on the website in, uh, in pencil form. Mm. If I have to change something out that's just penciled, I don't really cry about it. It's yeah. not a big deal. If it's inked, I cry about it. <laughs> it... it I've, I've got to imagine it's got maybe a little bit easier now that, like, you know, you've, you've got this massive catalog of, of, of books out there, you know, versus early on, you know, when you're first putting things out in the world, it, it's kind of a lot, it's a lot harder to, to edit when you don't already have work under your belt. Oh yeah, the process of self-editing is as big a, a skill to learn as anything else. So yeah, there, there is a good bit of that, you know, just understanding what works. What helps is finding that few people who give you good feedback, yeah. your beta readers people who you know sometimes they're family sometimes they're friends sometimes they're pen pals the ones who see around the corners of your story and can tell you what they see coming which isn't necessarily what they should get yeah but just the same um, learning to play with their expectations well that's a whole nother storytelling skill storytelling and skill. you were you were expanding that net in a, in a big way when you were putting these things out in the world you're almost sort of like crowdsourcing some of that feedback right Kinda, if, yeah what, what, what were were people's reaction were readers reactions having a, a clear impact on the story 
you always have to listen. Yeah. You know, um, when somebody comes up to you and says, uh, you know, oh, I was really, I, I really wanted to see this or that or the other happen in this story. Uh, it, it, is that ever going to be a part of the story? You know, you have to kind of pay attention to what people are looking for. Um, but at the same time, but at the same time, um, you know, you have to have the confidence to lead people through the story that you do want to tell. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example of this. Um, <laughs> all I can think of is that Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski, mm -hmm. where uh, I, I, a bunch of my friends who are major Lebowski fans still said, I wish they'd go back and put the bowling tournament in. Yeah. Because that big bowling tournament, although they understand it's not part of the story yeah. that was being told from the beginning, it was still kind of a shame not to see it after all that buildup. So... Um, Again, I, I kind of think the Coen brothers are not going to do that at this point, but uh, you do have to bear in mind that, um, well, hell, Je Jeff Smith said he never planned on showing the cow race in Bone, yeah. but, um, you know, it was just a thing that, that, that Grandma Ben did that doesn't necessarily have to be seen, and then a, a bunch of people said, you know, if there's no cow race, there's that's no fun. Why are you not going to do the cow race? And he changed his mind and went ahead and did it. So that happens. At, at this point, like the flip side of the Lebowski thing, you know, a movie that's been out for, I don't know, probably like 20 years at this point. Something is, like that, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the other side of that and what you risk being is, you know, George Lucas, right? You risk, yeah. you risk maybe, like, you know, messing with it. Yeah, you already. can't. There's, there's a line. There's a line. Yeah. And uh, you know you have to you have to hang on to your vision of what the story was supposed to be. Um, storytelling is always, you know, are, are, is the room coming along with you? You know, a stand-up comedian or an actor, you know, can tell when they've got the audience coming along with them yeah. and when they don't. And you know, if you don't have the audience coming along with you, then sometimes you need to uh, step back and change what you're doing a little bit. Um, things have to come across you have to communicate what you're what you're going for um, and you, you do need to hear from the readers as to what is or isn't coming across so that you can figure out how to slow things down speed these up things up make a character more interesting go for the uh, the, the different scenario a different way of looking yeah. at the way you're doing things I mean there's there's always that are you still having fun? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm having more fun doing No Mercy and the yeah. current book of Finder than I have in a long time. And I've got to imagine working on different things with different people helps a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I love to tinker. Yeah. And um, working on other people's books teaches me a lot about my own writing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do like to work with writers. You're still, you're still, still surprised that things you're learning about yourself at this point, even oh, though yeah. you've been doing it for so long. Always will be. Yeah. Always will be. I mean, if I'm doing it right, anyway. Yeah. There you go, those Carlos Speed McNeil. Uh, believe it or not, we are still finishing up our interviews from Baltimore Comic Con. These are the last two. Uh, I, ironically. Carla was actually the first person that I spoke to at the show. It was a very, very good first interview for Baltimore because she, she lives in the area. She's been going to it for years and has a, a very interesting uh, perspective on the ways in which it has evolved. Uh, I enjoy the show very much. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with her. She seems to think that the show is going in the right direction. Uh, very, very fascinating cartoonist and a, and a very fascinating person to speak to. Um, it was a little... The, the interview was a little precarious. It was, it was sitting, so I walked into a booth that she was sharing with another artist and just sort of sat down on the floor. Uh, people were coming and going, and, you know, everybody everybody knows and loves her around there, so people were constantly stopping by her booth. Um, I did this. I, I edited this one together, so all of the, uh, the, the editing issues are completely my fault. Don't blame Brian. There are a lot of breaks during this one so hopefully this uh, this fused together in a in, in a you know reasonably cohesive conversation uh but thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that carla has been working in comics for for quite some time now she's been doing uh she's been doing finder which is a, a, a sci-fi she calls it aboriginal sci-fi very 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 fascinating series since since 1996 which makes it easily uh one of the longest running independent comics out there 
Uh, her new book, you can check that out on Image. It's called No Mercy. Uh, the the trade paperback came out late last year. It is brutal. I you know unfortunately I, I only read it after the conversation, but woof, it is like it's this is, is not the kind of thing that uh, that will restore your faith in humanity. Uh, but thank you so much to Carla for taking the time to do that. Uh, what else? Oh, got one more. Got one one more conversation. So I'm I'm putting up these last two Baltimore shows. I am I am busy this week. I am in uh, in in Las Vegas at CES. Um, so, so putting up these, these last couple of shows ahead of time. So enjoy these, uh, and enjoy this conversation with Dennis Kitchen. I have enough other people with similar tastes yeah. that, uh, the market is there. I'll find it. I'm occasionally disappointed. Um, but for the most by, part, by I'm sales, you mean? Yeah. 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 You know, there's never any guarantees. Publishing is a big gamble. Yeah. And there, sometimes I put out things that I just love, and I'm sure thousands of other people will. And then it's like, wow, I guess, guess I was wrong. But they're fairly rare. Um, I've I've never been tempted to do things like superheroes. I mean, I, I outgrew those at a certain age, and they just kind of bore me now. And yeah. I, I, I'm. I, I leave that feel to others who make a lot more money doing it. <laughs> I'm much more interested in the stuff that's um, historical, autobiographical, slice of life, just uh, idiosyncratic art, yeah. and just stuff that's more offbeat. Uh, just interests me more because it's unexpected and unpredictable, and it speaks to me more than somebody wearing a costume. I uh, I actually spoke to uh, Paul Levitz recently, and they're putting out the um, the Eisner book, and your name yeah. came up a lot. It seemed like you. You, uh, you you helped out with that. You've got a pretty pretty good collection. Yeah, I, I represent the family, and I'm the custodian of the uh, original artwork. Yeah. And I published Will for many years. He was a good friend. He was a mentor. So, yeah, I was delighted that Paul did that book, and I did everything I could uh, to make it the best book it could be. How did you, uh, how did you become the custodian of the... Well, it was, you know... Part of a, a very long relationship that kept evolving. Um, Will originally, uh, he never wanted to part with his art. He was yeah. very fond of it. And uh, <laughs> at a certain point, we got of a certain age, you know, maybe in his 60s, he said his uh, estate attorney um, made some recommendations for tax purposes yeah. that he start doing it. So he grudgingly said he yeah. would. And he put his wife in charge of it because... It was too emotional for him, and she hired uh, Cat Ironwood, who was kind of a comics historian, and for various reasons, the, they, that relationship ended, and then he went with a, a dealer named uh, Mark Cohen, who a short time later got a brain tumor and died, and about that time, um, uh, Kitchen Sink Press was coming to an end, mm. and um, Will approached me, and he said, how would you like to be my literary agent or my art agent? And uh, I said sure, and so it just became one more hat. How did you, uh, how did you start publishing? Well, initially, you know, I tend to think of you as being, you know, kind of a contemporary of of Crumb and yeah, Spiegelman, I, and that's exactly what I was doing. And I went to my first comic convention in 1971. Phil Suling invited me, and uh, he invited uh, Will Eisner that year as well, and he had talked to Will about the undergrounds because Will had been out of it for quite a while. Yeah. He ended the spirit in 52. There was a very brief revival in 66, but pretty much he had been totally outside the comics industry doing educational comics and mm. uh, work for corporate clients yeah. and the U.S. Army. And uh, so in 1971, when Phil started telling him about the undergrounds, he was intrigued by them, um, by the business model. So he actually sent someone to look for me, and when they found me, I guess he read my badge and he said, uh, Mr. Uh, Eisner is looking for you, and I said, I'm, I'm sure you're mistaken, because, <laughs> you know, I was a kid in my 20s, and yeah. I, you know, he was already a living legend, and they insisted, no, he wants to see you, so he brought me to Will's private suite, and sure enough, he had... Um, all these questions he wanted uh, me to answer or verify things like uh, how we were distributed. He was 
accustomed to the newsstand model where, you know, the publisher yeah. prints, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand and they get scattered across the country. And if you're lucky, 50% sell and really maybe only 25% sell. The rest come back, they're pulped. It's a pretty inefficient system. And he heard that um, I sold mine on a non-returnable basis. And I said, that's right. Um, I give a deep discount, and the trade-off is I never see them again. No refunds. And he said, well, I, I find that very intriguing. He said, Paul, <clears throat> he said, Phil tells me you return original art to the artist. I said, absolutely. Isn't that the morally proper way? And he <laughs> said, I agree completely. He said, what about copyrights? I said, we allow creators to own the copyright. He said, well, that's very progressive. I like that, too. So... He said, how do you pay your artists? I said, we pay them on a royalty basis. So the more that they sell, the more they make. And he said, I like that too. We used to get a flat rate. I hated it. So at every step, we found we were simpatico. And then, you know, keep in mind too that while he's talking to me, I've got hair past my shoulders, a scraggly beard. I'm wearing bell bottoms and I'm a prototypical hippie. Yeah. Will's already balding then. He's wearing a three-piece suit and... Um, smoking a pipe as he joked years later he said Dennis and I both smoked but pipes but with different substances yeah. Yeah. You know? so point is the conversation's going great and then he said uh, I've never seen any of these underground comics can you show me some so I said <laughs> sure we went down to the floor of the convention where Phil Suling had several tables lined up he was one of my prime distributors so he had virtually every title you can think of and I was looking judiciously for something to hand him when he just at random picked up i think it was zap number two mm. that uh he opened to a page by s clay wilson <laughs> where uh captain Piscums was cutting the dick off another pirate and had the tip on a fork and said the tip tastes best something outrageous i could hardly have picked a more outrageous yep. example so he saw that and I saw him visibly blanch in front of me. And I saw then suddenly the generational difference kicked the divide, in. divide, yeah. And he had appreciated that we weren't censored, but he had no idea how uh, outrageous some of them got. And I started to say, you know, hey, you know, there are other examples that's not necessarily typical, you know. And at that point, um, there was another young artist happened to be standing at the table named Art Spiegelman, who was a total unknown at that point. He picked up in the conversation. He started defending Wilson and the genre in a way you would expect. And <laughs> Will basically backed off at that point. And he said, well, gentlemen, I've seen enough. Thank you. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm never going to speak yeah. to him again. But I had his business card. And when I got back, I was at that time in Wisconsin. And I wrote him a letter. And I said, it was great meeting him, and I enjoyed our conversation, and I was sorry that uh, he got kind of a, a bad impression uh, of, of the genre. And I said, I'm in closing, I think I must have sent him 10 or so other titles, and I said, this is a broader spectrum yeah. of what we're doing, and maybe this will be more to your liking. And not long afterwards, I got a nice letter from him, and he said, they were much more to my liking. He said, let's pick up on our conversation. So soon after that... I basically said, uh, you know, how about, um, I'd like to reprint The Spirit. Yeah. And he said, why would kids your age want to read that old stuff? And I said, well, I said, I've only seen a few. I want to see more. I think they're great. And he said, well, all right. If you're willing to take the risk, um, I'm willing to. He said, send me a contract and we'll get going. And I said, well, I, I don't do contracts. I, you have my word. I'll put it in a letter, however you want it. He said, well, that's all fine and good, but he said, um, I don't do business with anyone without a contract. So that, in, that started a whole new discussion yeah. where I tried to defend my kind of hippy-dippy position of, you know, the artist and I trust each other. Handshake's good enough. Yeah. I'm not going to rip anybody off. You'll get your check on time and all that. And he said, I believe you. He said, I truly do believe you. But he said, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, my widow or your widow may not know the obligation, nor will my widow if I get hit by a bus. He said, we need to have a formal understanding. 
And after finally debating it, I said, look, I, I really just don't want to pay money to an attorney to do this. And he said, I don't like to give money to attorneys either. He said, I'll send you a contract. And it had always been my feeling that <clears throat> publishers had imposed contracts on artists that were you know, unfair. Well, and, sure. There's, there, there's a big precedent for that. Exactly. So suddenly I realized, here's the artist forcing a contract on the publisher. <laughs> this was turning my world upside yeah. down. And he basically convinced me that I shouldn't have a negative attitude toward a contract. He said, a good contract simply obligates both parties to do certain things, and it, de and it defines what happens if certain contingencies happen. And he said... There's absolutely nothing inherently um, evil about a contract. And so he finally, you know, convinced me of that. And then after that, I had to then <laughs> admit he was right and start using a modified version with most of the underground yeah. guys. Although some of them for many years never had a contract. Like Crumb, for example, he just wasn't interested. He trusted me. He got his checks on time and everything, and and there were a few like him, but most were happy to, you know, either way, if they had an agreement or they didn't, it didn't seem important because at the time, nobody was thinking ahead. Will was old enough and experienced enough to know that you have to define things. When you're in your 20s, you just want to draw comics. Yeah. You don't think about... 10 years down the road or 20 years you don't think about heirs you don't think about what happens if uh, somebody in a foreign country wants to reprint your work or somebody wants to make a movie out of it you don't think about it because it doesn't seem real mm -hmm. or immediate and a good contract just defines you know who does what and how you share the revenue and so that forced me to be a much more responsible businessman, yeah. which was good for me. It was good for my artists. And that's how, step by step, he mentored me through a lot of uh, my personal life and my the evolution of my business. Um, so culminated where we started, where I ended up, you know, I, I represent the estate. I sell his original art. I... Uh, I curate art exhibits. There's one down the yeah, road yeah, at yeah, the yeah, Jeppe yeah, Museum. Yeah, amazing. There's yeah. a big one coming up. 2017 is his centennial of his birthday. I am currently putting together a show that'll travel in four countries. It'll be about 300 pieces. Oh. And another one that'll be at the Society of Illustrators in 2017. So keeping his legacy alive is one of the things that I and the family are regularly trying to do. Um, and, and, you know, the same is true with Harvey Kurtzman and, and other artists that I either represent or have a vested interest in. Um, I, I wear a lot of hats, sometimes too many. Uh, you were clearly thinking a little bit differently from your contemporaries. I mean, you, you, you're an artist yourself, but it sounds like you made the transition pretty quickly into publishing other people. Yeah, and you know, it's that's one of those forks in the road that I always look back and say, what if, but it's yeah. too late. So I still try to draw, yeah. you know. I, you get to be an artist and I, you get to publish fun. some of your own work. Yes, more often it's other people because I take their deadlines more seriously yeah. than my own. But at heart, if you ask me, well, what do I do? I would list cartoonists first, mm. even if time-wise, um, you know, it was sixth or seventh on the list. Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. I get satisfaction from all of them, and I guess that's why I, I, I haven't quit the other jobs. They're, each is creative in its own way, and I liken it sometimes to maybe an analogy to the film world where uh, I, I'm, I'm not just acting. Sometimes I'm directing, mm. sometimes I'm producing, sometimes I'm distributing. So it's a kind of thing where each of the steps are important to the process. Yeah. And um, some of those steps um, an artist would find repugnant. You know, it's like, please don't make me get involved in that. But um, it interests me. And that's one of the things also that I think bonded Will and I was Will was a very good businessman. 
who, unlike most of his peers, he took a great interest in the number side and the pragmatic side, like distribution. He made yeah. it a point to get to know the distributors, to get to know the publishers, to understand how the business worked top to bottom. And um, he was himself briefly a publisher, and he was a packager. And so each of those roles, you know, um, made him uh, just a more valuable ally when, when, when I would sometimes be stymied by something or think, you know, there's a crisis in the industry, you know, I'm going to be out of business in a year. And he would say, oh, don't worry, Dennis, I've seen this industry die four times, you know. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's reassuring. I, a little, kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he was generally right. He, yeah. he saw it through a perspective I didn't have because I was so young. And now that I'm of a certain age, uh, you know, I get it. And when I talk to young artists, I find in a weird way I'm paralleling the kinds of advice, reassurances uh, he used to give me. Things change. The technology yeah. certainly changed. Sure. The mode of distribution, the formats, all these things. But certain fundamentals stay the same. Do, do, do you are, are, are you interested in working with younger artists as well? I mean, it, it, most of the stuff he produces. Absolutely. And um, my agency with John Lind, for example, we've represented some young artists, and uh, it's, it's great. I, I love nothing more than discovering and nurturing talent. Yeah. Um, but that's less and less what I do. Right now, we're focusing most of our energy on Kitchen Sink Books, which is a new imprint we have in association with Dark Horse. Mm. And the reason I did that was I, I, I love making books, but I don't want to be a publisher again. I don't want to have a staff with payroll. I don't want to deal with printing and manufacturing and warehousing and selling. So what John and I do is we editorially assemble the books, design the books, and then we turn them over to Dark Horse, and they do all the rest. Um, what I would technically call the shit work. Uh, I, I <laughs> leave to them. And I, I focus on the fun part and I don't mean to you know, in any way belittle what they're doing sure. um, it's just I did that for 30 years yeah. I've had enough of it I want to do the fun part now um, and sometimes that includes you know drawing so so you, you, you mentioned that, that that fork earlier when you you, you know made, made the decision or at least you know headed, headed down one path is it what, what what was that for? What was what was the beginning of? It was when I had self-published originally, yeah. because I didn't know how else to get my work out there. I didn't know a publisher. I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's not yeah. the center of the yeah. publishing universe. Yeah. So I found a printer and I printed as many as I could afford, which was four thousand copies. I also d had no idea how you distribute things, so I common sense went around to every head shop bookstore, used bookstore, drugstore, anybody at the east side of Milwaukee where I live to take my books on consignment. I'd give them a stack of 25, have them sign a consignment sheet. I'd come back a week or two later, give them another stack. And they were selling because in 1969, that whole, call it the counterculture, that, that hippie movement, those were my that was my audience, and they were eager for their own entertainment. Mm -hmm. They had underground newspapers, but beyond that, very little. Yeah. And um, so these things were selling really briskly, and so I managed to sell 3,500 literally in my neighborhood, which is pretty remarkable in retrospect. There's a lot of small publishers now who can't sell 3,500 yeah. nationwide. So that encouraged me. And the final 500 I sold to a shop in San Francisco, and they sold out right away and wanted more. And suddenly I realized, you know, maybe I can actually make a living doing this. And I briefly had a publisher in San Francisco, the print mint, the ones who did Zap Comics and Mr. Natural. And, yeah. and I was, yeah, I was delighted to have a publisher. But make a long story short, I didn't trust their accounting. I, I just got a bad vibe from them. And so I decided I'm just going to self-publish again as I think I can do as well or better. And I mentioned that to a couple of the Chicago underground cartoonists I knew. 
they had problems with the same publisher and one of them said to me well if you're going to self-publish would you do ours as well mm. and i fatefully said yeah. sure you yeah. know I, you know i'm doing mine too is just as easy sure. which was a t totally stupid thing to say and i think you know within a short period of time i realized now i have this obligation to these friends i really got to get my act together I got to give them a proper accounting like I expected from the publisher that I didn't trust I don't ever want to be in the same position where they go hey you know how many did you print how many did you sell and so on so I made it a point early on make the accounting very transparent and to be able to verify everything to be conscientious I started hustling up I created a mail order I I had co-founded around the same time an underground newspaper and they exchanged with other underground newspapers so I had scores of these papers and I would scour them and clip all the ads for head shops in any place that looked like it might be a customer and I'd mail them a catalog you know follow up it was just hustling because I didn't know how to do it I just did what yeah. seemed like common sense and it worked. It worked well enough that it was growing, and uh, it was kind of being in the right place at the right time because the demand far exceeded the supply, and that's that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> when you're starting a business and you're dumb, <laughs> inexperienced. Then, uh, yeah, inexperienced <laughs> is probably better than dumb. But the next big thing was uh, Robert Crumb was in Chicago mm -hmm. and. Jay and Skip, the Chicago cartoonist, took the bus up with Crumb. We met, we hit it off. I had an old 78 RPM jukebox ah, in my apartment. Yeah. And we, you know, it was like <laughs> love at first sight. So he said he'd give me his next comic, which turned out to be a thing called Homegrown Funnies, and that sold, you know, 140,000 yeah. or so copies. And it just, it just kept growing. Um, I never had a business plan. I never had a proper relationship with a bank. I never did any of the things that would be recommended if you were starting a business. But even if I had known the right way to do it, I couldn't walk into a bank with hair down the sure. middle of my back and say, hey, I need some money. And they'd say, for what? And I'd say, I'm publishing these things. They would have blanched like Will did yeah. originally. Yeah. And I'd have been kicked out. So I had to bootstrap all the financing. Um, it, it was just an unusual time, and we made do. And eventually it became a much more standard business. And, you know, one by one I added employees, and, the, you know, it, 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 it diversified, and we did more than comics, and it lasted 30 years, yeah. which I never would have imagined. How, how did you first start hearing about this self-publishing alternative comics movement in, in Milwaukee of all places? Um, I just, no, no one told me anything. Mm. I just, um, I, I literally knew nothing. I just, uh, I knew I could, I'd already drawn the comic in large part as part of a humor magazine for the college I attended. Mm. But somebody ran off with its treasury when it was my turn to be the editor. And so I had a half a magazine, and that's when I decided um, I'll just do it on my own. Forget the university. Um, so it was as simple as that. It, was, it didn't seem complicated. It's just I'll print them, I'll sell them. I even had uh, local ads because I didn't expect it would sell beyond Milwaukee. So some of the revenue came from... You know, getting 50 or 100 bucks yeah. from, uh, you know, enough stores to fill an eight-page centerfold. Um, just, I, I just tried to be, um, I tried to be smart about it without knowing the rules. And there was no role model. I didn't even see Zap. Or yeah. I think the, I had only seen one other underground comic when I started, so it wasn't like there was an industry I was aware of. It all just sprung up hmm. almost instantaneously uh, in pockets around the country. Yeah. 
San Francisco and Berkeley were regarded as the mecca for sure. all things hippiedom, yeah. but the Chicago-Milwaukee axis was solid, and there were pockets, you know, New York, not as much as you'd think, but mm. cartoonists would pop up and then they'd migrate. And uh, back then, you know, way before the internet, we would just communicate mostly through snail mail, the phone, and so things took longer to assemble, but there was a camaraderie that we, we all felt we were part of something. Yeah. Uh, there was a movement in the air. We, we were, uh, you know, if you had long hair and somebody else had long hair, you, you know, you just assumed you were part of this movement. It wasn't until a few years later when, you know, bikers had yeah, long hair yeah, and suddenly, yeah. you know, you, it, it wasn't innocent after the, 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 the first few years. Yeah. It was, we, we all had our ultimate moments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but early on, I mean, I, I did things like, uh, you know, talk about dumb or inexperienced. I, I gave credit to all the head shops who'd order. Uh, I never asked for credit references or anything. I just shipped the books. I'd mm. send them a bill. And for the first couple years or so, everybody paid. They might have been slow, but everybody paid because you, I, I mean, it was just understood. You wouldn't rip off another head, yeah. you know? Yeah. When I finally did get ripped off by someone, I was like mortified. It's like, how could that happen? You know, we're all in this together. And just very gradually, I had to become a little cynical because again, you don't stay innocent forever. And you start to realize not everybody's honest. Maybe we do need to get a credit reference. But it, yeah. it, it for a long time, was very casual, very trusting. And I think the early comics reflect that. And then if you watch, you know, you know, then the, some of the comics get darker and they get more cynical. But there's always, at least early on, a real streak, I think, of optimism and hope mm. and a revolution in the air in a positive sense. Sure. Like, we're going to make society better. We're, we're smarter than our yeah. parents' generation. Yeah. We're, 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 we're going to... We're not going to do stupid things like start wars in Vietnam and we're going <laughs> to we're going to legalize pot and we're going to let gay people have their rights and let women and black people everybody was like all these movements in yeah. the air and we just knew everything was going to get better soon and sometimes those changes did happen they just took a lot longer There you go. That was Dan Kitchen. He's a he's a he's an author. He's a cartoonist. He's a publisher. He's an agent. He founded the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Founded Kitchen Sink Press. Founded Kitchen Sink Books. Uh, he is the agent of uh, the Will Eisner estate. We we're actually talking about that quite a bit because um, not not only is there a, a new book about uh, Will Eisner out from Abrams right now, to which he uh, contributed quite a bit because he's he's in charge of much of that art. But uh, he was also on hand at Baltimore Comic Con, uh, presenting awards uh, to to Jules Pfeiffer and uh, and Will Eisner himself during the uh, during this year's Harvey's. Uh, really, really fascinating guy, and um, obviously huge comics historian. And very few people out there know nearly as much about uh, comics underground and otherwise as Dennis Kitchen. So uh, thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks again to Carlos Speed McNeil for, for speaking to me as well to very fascinating conversations with very fascinating people. And, and with that, we finally wrap up all of our conversations from Baltimore Comic-Con many months ago. Hope you enjoyed those. Uh, thanks. Uh, I, you know, I always thank Brian at the end of the show. Did not edit this one together. Any, any, editing or sound issues 100% my fault but uh, thanks to Brian uh, for usually editing the show uh, thanks to everybody at the Boing Boing Podcast Network if you like this show and many other fine podcasts you can check those out over at iTunes and while you're over at iTunes you should take the, the time to rate our show thanks to everyone who's rated it recently really appreciate it uh, any any time you can get over there and give us uh, give us you know I was going to say a couple, but five. Anytime you can get over there and give us five stars or give us a rating, it helps out um, a lot. It, it helps uh, when we're trying to get more people for the show. Uh, many more of those coming up, several of them lined up. Very excited to bring a lot of those sh- sh- to you in the new year. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to us throughout uh, 2015. Looking forward to 2016. I am 
in uh, in CES at CES in Las Vegas as a re- the, of the uh, of, of the airing of the show. So uh, I will be busy. I I will do my best to come away with that with uh, with a, a, at least at least one more episode of the show in the can. Uh, if you've got any feedback or anything, it's rylcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. Uh, Facebook, like us on Facebook. That's about all I got. I got a busy week ahead of me, so I am going to get to that. And we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. <laughs>